Hi friends, this is episode 16 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hi guys, I cannot wait for us to get into the material today. It is absolutely phenomenal. As we take a look at God's custom furniture for his new home with his people. But before we get there, I just want to let you know we have some new advancements to our podcast. If you go to thebiblelab.com, you now have the ability to download and print out a study guide that you can follow along as you're going through the audio. So you can kind of tell where we're at and what we're going through. And so I invite you to go there and check that out. Now, in today's episode, I want you to definitely make it all the way to the end because I've got a real surprise for you. Because as we take a look at the furniture in the tabernacle, specifically as you look at the Ark of the Covenant, I guarantee you're going to hear something today that you've probably never heard of or even thought of before. But when we break open the words that are right there in scripture, you're going to see something that God is trying to tell you today that is the most exciting thing that I could possibly tell you. So make sure you hang on all the way to the end, because when you hear what the Ark of the Covenant shows you about God's character and a message specifically implanted into that furniture for you, I I think it's going to touch you in ways that you never thought possible. So I encourage you to say a little prayer right now for God to come in and to speak specifically to you through this message. Welcome to the Bible Lab. All right, take care of your yes and no cards. Number one, when I was younger, there were many times that I did not want to go to church. When I was younger, there were many times I did not want to go to church. That's what I thought. About 70% of this crowd, I knew you were a bit rebellious, but I had no idea. 70% of this crowd, when you were younger, you would rather stay home and watch the Saturday morning cartoons, correct? Let's see. Number two, if I could, I'd remove all the furniture from my house and replace it. All right, we're split. It looks like about 50-50. So those of you who said yes, you've spent years collecting those antiques. No way you'd part with that antique. The rest of you have shopped at Ikea. It's time to get rid of that Ikea stuff because it's falling apart. Good. All right, 50-50. Number three, there's at least one piece of furniture I would never part with simply for sentimental reasons. Yes or no? Wow, look at this. Okay, all the old people are saying yes, all the young people are saying no. <laughs> they, haven't, they haven't learned. Good. It looked like about 70% of you saying yes. There's one piece that you would not get rid of simply for sentimental reasons. Number four, most people's hearts do not prompt them to be giving. Most people's hearts do not prompt them to be giving. Mm. We're mixed. It looks, it looks like about 50-50 split there and a question mark back there. Thank you, ma'am. I have the same question. Number five, last one. Our sanctuary's pews and pipe organ are sacred. 
and it would be an affront to God if we replaced them with more modern items. I don't know if I should say the percentage on, on the microphone. Because almost all of you, once again, rebellious people, almost all of you said no. A couple of you said yes. Some of you are shaking the no card. Churches have split over pews or theatrical seating. People have left and said, I'm never coming back and you won't get my tithe unless I have uncomfortable pews. Better than a, a church, you might have heard of this church up in the uh, Northwest, that uh, it's split, 50-50 split. Half of them went somewhere else and started their own church because uh, it was one of those octagonal churches, fanned seating out there, and along the upper edge of the wall, um, they painted a mural from creation all the way to the second coming. And in the upper right, in the mural of Adam and Eve, the, split, the, the church split because Adam had a belly button. The artist had painted a belly button on Adam. And that split the church. So I guess pews, it makes sense. This is important stuff. Daryl. Our church was split when it was first built. That's right. They couldn't decide on whether to have pews or theatrical seating, so they put theater seats in the transepts and pews in the sanctuary. That's right. And ultimately, the, the pew people won because there's pews in the transept now. They held out. <laughs> exactly. Yes, there was a time in the transepts where it's theatrical seating. Exactly. A little Loma Linda trivia. Thank you, Daryl. <laughs> Last week, we, uh, we were at a wedding we saw God exchange vows, the, the 10 words, the 10 vows. How are we going to live together? What's our agreement now that we're getting married? We looked at chapter 19 of the buildup, the engagement, the proposal, and then the wedding vows given in chapter 20. And today, as we step into the next part of a marriage relationship with God, uh, we, get to, we get to move into a new home. It's a mobile home. I'm sorry. God chose a mobile home over a stationary home. He wanted a home that would move. And so he gives plans from chapters 25 through 30 on this new home for our new, wed for our new marriage, our new life together. And then he starts picking out furniture, but he didn't want just any furniture. He didn't want you to go down to, you know, uh, Joe's furniture store and to just buy some furniture and fill it. He wanted custom furniture. I won't ask how many people here have custom furniture in your house. So we've got a bunch of doctors here, so I'm sure it would be the majority. <laughs> but God says, I want some custom furniture. We know from experience in this class that God doesn't do anything by accident. He doesn't do anything on a whim. Every single thing that God says and does has so much richer, deeper meaning than most people would attribute to it. So we're going to take a look at that today, but to get there, to get ourselves emotionally prepared, to have the message that God wants us to receive, I want to ask you this question. When you were a child or new to the faith and you asked, why do we have to go to church? What response did you receive? Why do we have to go to church? What response did you receive? We'll start over here. 
Because I said so. <laughs> because I said so. Now get in the car. Good. Because it's God's house and that's where we praise him. Okay, because it's God's house and that's where we praise him. Can't do that at your own house. Yes. Next. Why do we got to go to church? Because Jesus did. Because Jesus did. That's what you were told. Okay. Back here. Because it's Sabbath and that's what we're supposed to do. Because it's Sabbath and that's what we're supposed to do. Yes. You got to get your sticker star on the poster board in heaven. Otherwise, you won't have enough attendance credits to, to make it through the pearly gates. Okay. Good. Over here. Yeah. I lived a very long time ago. And uh, I think things are different now. Um, <clears throat> I knew there was a Cornhusker game on the football and was going on the radio, but I, I never, I, I just didn't pay any attention to it. But we never questioned, I'm sorry. Yeah. That would be 19, by the time I was thinking, 35. Yeah. 1935. So around 1935, mm -hmm. you didn't question. No. It was, you just do it. That's right. That's mm -hmm. also during the era where mm -hmm. things were more comfortably black and white. Yes. It was right or wrong. Mm -hmm. You do it or you don't. Mm -hmm. There's no gray area. There's no maybe. There's no, it, you just do it. Yeah, it was painful sometimes because my mother would get up and she'd cry. And so we tried to squeak down, but otherwise everything was black and white there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's what I did. Yeah, exactly. Many of you grew up in, in that type of environment. Yes, sir. Uh, I should say God invites us. Uh, because God invites us. Okay, good. You're invited to God's house. Good. Over here. Um, because it's a place that even when you're stressed or have heartache, that you don't have to talk to somebody for them to know what's going on, and there's a community. Awesome. Yes, it's a community of believers. See, that's much different. You're from a different generation, a slightly different generation from you go because you're supposed to and you have to, whether you like it or not. And you, you're from a generation that says, but what are the community aspects? What, what do I gain by joining with a community that cares? Good. My parents would say, it's a dictatorship. You're mistaken. When you get your own house, you can make that decision to stay home. <laughs> yes. There's a Christian comedian who says um, he would try to pretend like he was sick when it was time to go to church. And his mom would say, well, throw up and prove it. So he'd go and pretend to throw up, and he'd come out, oh, I threw up. She, she says, well, now don't you feel better? Let's go to church. <laughs> this is the portion of scripture that most people go to when they look at the establishment of church. What is church? You find in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 8, the beginning preparation, God's vision for what was going to happen. And so as you look at your study guide, read along with me. Verse 1 of Exodus 25 says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me and from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. So obviously God didn't even say everyone's got to bring something. He said, no, no. If you want to give, you can put something in the beaker. Number three. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, 
Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat's hair, ramskins, dyed red, and another type of durable leather. By the way, the actual translation, the reason why it says, and another kind of durable leather, is because it could be one of two things. It could just be a basic word for leather, or it could be the word for leather, which is the sea cows from the Red Sea they had just crossed. So it, chances are it's sea cow leather. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate, uh, breastpiece. These, uh, excuse me, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. So of these, oh, it's, someone says a priest wear jewelry. Bite your tongue. Okay. <laughs> you are rebellious. Of these eight verses, what word or phrase jumps out at you besides the jewelry? Okay. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You're good. So out of these eight verses, what word or phrases jumped out at you as I was reading it? Whose heart prompts them to give. I'm sorry? Say it louder. Whose hearts prompt them. Whose hearts prompt them. Okay. So give if you want to give. Don't give if you don't want to give. If your heart's saying, nah, I, I, I really... I really don't feel like it. Don't do it. What else? Ah, yes. I will dwell among them. Many of you who've gone to the Bible lab for a while, you know the revolution here. Are there any other gods in all the known world that would want to dwell with humans? No, not a single one. Not a single God. In fact, you have got to cut yourselves and scream and have crazy sacrifices and orgies and all kinds of stuff to even get your God's attention, much less get him to dwell with you. And so the revolution here is a God who says, look, all the other gods in your thought live in the celestial kingdom. I'm going to live in the terrestrial kingdom. I'm going to live with you. Up until that point, and you can see if you skip ahead to Exodus chapter 33, you see a reference that says that Moses had built a tent outside of the camp. And that tent he called the tent of meeting, where he and Joshua and some of the other leaders went to go meet with God. It was a place that they purposely said, this is where we're going to go talk with you. God says, hey, that's nice, but I don't want a tent outside of town. I want, a, I want a tent smack dab in the middle of the people. This is a much... Di- Moses was being respectful by putting the tent outside of camp. God says, no, no, no. I don't, want that. I don't want that type of respect. I want to be in the middle of people. I don't want to be on the outskirts, the fringes, where people have to go out to this one side. I want to be in the middle. A huge revolution. Something that I thought that jumped out to me was the different values in between the things that were asked. Yes. Because um, it seems like it could almost create not really chaos, but like uh, distance between different people. Because if they were thinking of giving what they had, it might be less than somebody else. And it seems like it might create like frustration for not being as good as somebody else. That's huge. That's huge. I never thought of that. But I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think you're onto something there because it, there was such a lo- large list and a diverse list of items. Some are gold, 
and others are sea cow skin. Um, there's a huge difference in value between those. And so, yeah, I, it, I never thought of that. God allowed the people to be able to give of what they had. And even those that we wouldn't consider rich were giving richly. Very cool. Kind of like a wedding registry, maybe? <laughs> yeah, so God registers. at Israeli Depot and says, go get some supplies. We got some building to do. We're going to build a house. Very cool. Very cool. So God says, let me be revolutionary. Let's, let's build a home together. Here's the supplies we need. Now let me describe the custom furniture. And he talks about some furniture, some of the pieces that they could figure out what it is. Other pieces made them stop and, and pause and think about it. And so as you look at your study guide, you see the next section where it says in Exodus 25 to 30, God shares the design plan for his new home. The question that we have to ask here is what do you think God is trying to reveal about his character in each of the following designs? And that's very important to stress about God's character and what is God trying to say? Because that's the different angle that has brought us all in this community to deeper understanding of God is instead of looking at things and saying, what does it mean? What does the ark mean? What does the table mean? What is it saying for me? What does it mean to me? A lot of Bible classes try this approach, and I, it's done me a lot of good going through Bible studies that ask, so what does this mean for me? But the different angle that we take in the Bible lab is not asking, what does, it do for, what does it mean to me? We ask, what does it mean to God? It's a different angle. You look at it differently and you see a whole different list of things. And so today, instead of looking at the furniture the way you've always looked, what does it mean to me? I want you to ask the question, what does this furniture mean to God? What is he trying to say, and what is he trying to do? You'll notice at the bottom of the study guide, uh, it has the first two items, the ark and the table. You flip over the study guide, and you'll see the rest, the lampstand. You see the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering, the courtyard, priestly garments, the altar of incense, and the basin for washing. We're not going to go through it in order. Because some of you have some good things, and you're like, boy, we're never going to get to that one. So I'm just going to ask you from this list... What do you think some of these items of furniture meant to God? What do you think he was trying to say or reveal about himself and his, his new marriage plan, his way of being married to us? What do you think the different items meant to God? Uh, the two that first jumped out at, uh, to me at, of the ark was a reminder with Aaron's rod that, was, that had miraculous powers of where you, the relationship with Egypt and the other gods that you had come out of. Mm -hmm. And then that the wedding vows were placed in the ark was that it should be central and, and focused on. Uh, yeah, that's what I think. Because I think mm -hmm. when we plan a house, old school was the living room where you entertained and everyone came and more modern now is the focus is on the family room where the family gathers. Yeah, 
Exactly. So for you, you looked at you looked at the ark, the contents of the ark mostly. Uh, Aaron's rod, which budded. What what type of leaves and buds? Almond. Okay, almond. Real quickly, look at the lampstand. What shapes were asked to be part of the design of the lampstand? Almond. They're both the same. Most commentators, when they look at the shapes of almonds and almonds on, the, uh, on Aaron's rod, they've come to the conclusion that possibly God is using almond because almond is the first budding tree of spring. It's the first one. It's how you can tell spring is here. It's a new thing, new life. And the people at that time equated spring with a new beginning. We equate January 1 with a new beginning, but things are still pretty dead. In that part of the world, spring was the new beginning. It represented new life, a new start. And so many commentators look at the almond shape for the lampstand and Aaron's rod budding in that type of way as God saying, this is a new start, a fresh start, new life together. Very cool. You also mentioned, Thad, about the wedding vows. The 10 wedding vows were placed in there. I'm going to come back to that because there's something huge that I think we need to see. Yes, ma'am. I find it interesting how now we consider things that are beautiful to be distracting, but the um, tabernacle was gorgeous, and I think it was almost like something that drew the people to God by showing that he's like amazing because they didn't have that stuff on their own without combining it with everyone to make mm. it something beautiful and holy. Yeah, they had to come together. This was not Moses' church. This was the people's. It was a community that came together. I love it. Here on the screen, you'll notice I have a diagram, a mock-up of what it would have looked like the temple and surround, uh, surrounded by the courtyard. One of the things I want you to notice about this that I think is, is quite interesting is that if you were to take an American football field, you see up there at the top right, and if you were to divide it like a cross, you could fit the courtyard and the temple in less than one-fourth of that field. You would put it in one of those quadrants, and you'd have plenty of room outside. I always pictured it as huge when I was growing up. It's a huge place where the, the ark is kind of lonely in its little spot there in the Holy of Holies. I picture the furniture as being really big. When you look at the measurements, they, the ark, how big, was the, uh, how big was the ark? About three foot, nine inches, like two and a quarter feet wide, same tall. You look at the the table, the table, two and a half feet off the ground, three feet wide, foot and a half deep. These are tiny pieces of furniture. Jesus set up a studio apartment. <laughs> These things are small, but it was movable. Remember, God decided, even though he owns all the universe and, and heaven is so glorious and his throne room is so huge and the train of his robe fills the whole temple, 
God says, ah, but that's fine. It, it doesn't matter as long as we're together. I, I would live in a, in a small studio, single-wide mobile home to live with you. Harvey. When people grow, especially during childhood, and are malnourished, they will be small. They will be short. And so I suspect the sizes were not inappropriate for the height of the people. Because I suspect they were quite short. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Because when they're seeing giants, which are only about nine feet tall, um, chances are they were a little bit shorter than, uh, than some people today. Yes. Was there another comment over here? Yes. What I realize in here is, God, is that God is very specific of what he likes. And um, even the size and colors, uh, he specifically told you know, Moses what he liked. So what do you think if there, there are or there, or there were or there, there was any variation in color, for example, uh, of anything that God uh, told to Moses and he didn't do it. So um, what is your answer? Would God accept it or not? If your answer is yes or no, how would you explain that in terms of God's love and character? Yeah, it's interesting to see what happens in Exodus 31. Because I think that answers your question in a really unique way that also says a lot about God and his approach. To, to life and to ministry. Because you'll see in Exodus 31 that God names his interior designer and his assistant interior designer. And those two individuals are Bezalel and Oholiab. Okay? Bezalel, it says in Exodus 31 that God chose him, but that he sent his spirit into him to give him the skill. And then he goes into detail of all these different types of craft, which go from everything from embroidery to stoneworking and everything in between. And it also goes a bit farther in Exodus 31 by saying, and that he also sent his spirit onto the skilled workers. And so even though he allowed them to use their own creativity and he wasn't all that specific about even what type of you know, designed to put on the trim or the edge or the lip of the table or whatever, um, he gave them dimensions and then he inspired them. He breathed into them the Holy Spirit, which gave them the skill necessary to do exactly what they did. So my answer is, I'm sure there was some variation, but at the same time, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you become creative and you start having thoughts you normally wouldn't have, and those thoughts are coming from the Spirit, it's probably pretty close to what God the Father wanted. Does that make sense? And so it's interesting to note that even though he's sparse, at least in what Moses had written down at this place, that God didn't leave it too much to chance by sending his Holy Spirit to literally guide the designers and the skilled workers. I've always been impressed with the priestly garments, how colorful they were. They yeah. were out of blue, purple, scarlet, and gold thread. Yeah. God likes bright colors. And 
I do too, so I've always yeah. thought he was great because of that. But and then the precious stones and the breastplate and a way to communicate with them and but yeah. th those are royal colors yeah. and he he appreciated quality. He, he's he's an artist. Yeah, absolutely. When you when you look at the description in Revelation about the holy city, the New Jerusalem, and you see all these stones and all these colors, uh, yeah, God God's not afraid of color. <laughs> Over here. Yeah, it's a question and. As we agreed that God wants to dwell among the Israelites, that's why he wants that, the temple in the middle of them. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, maybe on the first generation that make the furniture can see that, because after that, only a few people that can really see them, and even the ark only can be seen once a year yeah. by a specific person only. And it's kind of irony. He wants to be dwell among them, but those Furniture cannot be seen by everybody. Why is yeah. that? Yeah, that's a good question. What do you guys think? What do you think? Why is it that God places himself in the middle? And the most beautiful parts of the temple are never seen except by the priests. The Ark of the Covenant is not seen, you said, except for once a year by the high priests. We do know via scripture that there were other times that non-high priests uh, were able to do it or the priest that wasn't selected by lot was able to see it because if you look at first samuel chapter three i'm going to ruin the felt board set that you grew up with because when you read first samuel chapter three and you see this boy named samuel that's been dropped off at the temple, and Eli's supposed to be watching him but you read chapter three and samuel hears samuel and he doesn't know who it is. He thinks it's Eli. Look at chapter 3 and tell me, where is Samuel sleeping? Where is Samuel having a sleepover? Right next to the Ark of the Covenant. He's in the most holy place. Yeah, oh dear. Someone just said over here. He is right there in the holiest of holies. Now you can see how lax Eli was while he's having problems with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, because if he can't even keep this little kid out of the holiest of holies, sleeping, having a sleepover next to the Ark of the Covenant, you, knew, you, you know that he had issues of parenting. God wanted fellowship with these people. <clears throat> God is holy. He is perfect. Mm -hmm. The people are not. God dwells in the most holy. The people come with their sacrifice. And between the sacrifice and the most holy, a transformation occurs. Hmm. And the person becomes holy. Hmm. So that it's designed to transform people from sinners to holy. Hmm. Exactly. Exactly. God has set up a tangible model for a group of people who were very concrete in their thinking to show you go from being out on the edge, on your own in the wilderness, to making your way in a very visible way. Because there was nothing to be close. No tent was to be pitched close to the courtyard. So you would walk exposing yourself as a sinner to come give your sacrifice, and from the sacrifice all the way in through the basin of washing, all the way in past the showbread and the light and the incense into what many people call the mercy seat. 
to go from unholy to the most holy or righteous. It's a tangible, measurable, quantifiable movement from out to in. You're absolutely right, right there. There, there, and then I'm going to share. Go ahead. Um, I think that another reason why it was in the middle was because it was a common ground that everyone shared. And I think that the reason that people couldn't go into the most holy places, I agree a lot with him, but I think that um, since there was a separation of sin, that originally when there was no sin, I think that we would have been able to access that place. Hmm. And even though there was a plan to um, take our sins, it hadn't yet taken place in action. And so... I think you're absolutely right. I'm going to come back to the word that you use. It's a brilliant word, access. I'm going to come back to that right after Raul. Many of these things have to do with what we spoke last week, the Hebrew weddings. Yes. Um, uh, one year before the wedding, the groom will present the bride with a, 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 um, the contract. Yes, you know, the ketubah. The ketubah, that's yes. right. And there is outlined the, the things that the, the groom is willing or wants to do for the bride, mm -hmm. and the commitment. Mm -hmm. And that contract or commitment, it's a written document, is kept by the bride for, for the rest of her life. Yeah. And she must keep it, is the, her document. Yeah. And I think God does the same. Mm -hmm. He gives the document, what we call the Ten Commandments, and says, keep it in the very center of the camp of your of your worship of everything keep it in the center and yeah. that's i think is the reason why it's right there in the middle and and not only in the middle and i agree 100 percent. if you look at the structure of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle it is the same ratio of the interior design as what you would have with a typical nomad's tent this larger section, which in this case is the holy place, not the most holy place, but the holy place, that's the area for the men. It's kind of the common place for the men. The most holy place in a nomad's tent, that is known as the woman's quarter. That's where the bride is. That's where the bride stays. It's the sacred space. All the other men, they don't come in there except for the husband. Only one man is allowed to go in there, and that's the husband. Makes sense why only the priest would be able to go in there once. One, one man in there, because that's the husband's role. Now, I want to show you something really quickly here. Of course, you see on the diagram, you can see the lampstand, which is right here. You see the table of showbread. You see the altar of incense right here. And you see the Ark of the Covenant right here. I'm going to start with the table of showbread real quick because the Ark of the Covenant is going to blow your mind. Table of showbread. What was on the table? We find from other places, not just this chapter, but several other references in Numbers and Leviticus, that on the table was not simply bread. We call this the table of showbread, and I wish we didn't. Exodus 25 just calls it the table. But what we find with all the references to the table, it held several things. The table not only held 12 loaves of bread in two stacks of six, but it also had plates, and it had goblets, it had pitchers. It was a table setting. 
This bread was made daily, which reminds us of what Christ said in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, give us this day our daily bread. Many people saw this as just an example of God providing for their needs because of manna. Because what did they make the bread from? It was, it was, their, it was their way of making bread. So these manna cakes, they're every day, they're making these cakes, 12 of them. Many began to believe that these 12 represented the 12 tribes of Israel. But I would beg to differ. Because the scene that Jesus set up was not for those 12, it was for another 12 who would sit around a table with table settings. Christ would pick up the bread at Passover and say, let me tell you what this bread represents. All this time, you've made it for generation after generation. And you've wondered what it represents. You've guessed that it represents the life-giving power of God, that God will sustain you. But it's my belief that when Christ raised it up at Passover, he says it's not simply to sustain you, it's to save you, because this bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. I will make sure that you not only eat in this life, but you will make it to a life to where you'll never hunger again. And then he picks up the cup, which is the same cup that was sitting on this table, filled with the juice of grapes. Wine or Welch's, you decide. <laughs> All of the things, the two major things that Christ lifts up during the Last Supper are on this table. And I believe this table is a representation of the Last Supper more than it is just God will provide for the 12 tribes of Israel. As you look around the room, the lampstand there are seven wicks. God loves the number seven. I'm not sure what it means, but it was never to be, uh, it was never to go out. You're supposed to keep it lit all the time. It was the source of light inside the tent, the only source of light inside this tent. And of course, we know the incense, which had a very specific recipe, represented the prayers going up to God. And it's interesting that the recipe God gave he disallowed anyone in camp to use that same recipe for their own incense. It's supposed to be special, different. But now I want us to look in closing right here at the Ark of the Covenant. It was Martin Luther who really uh, promoted the idea of that covering on top to be called the mercy seat. Because as he saw it, that was the place where during the Day of Atonement, that's where blood would splatter from the sacrifice that was done right in front of the, the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, that blood, uh, representing Christ's shed blood, would bring us forgiveness. Many people have seen that top, that top piece, the covering with the cherubim on it. They've called it God's footstool, where God's toe would touch earth. And that's the place you would come and and see God. And so they've called it the footstool. They've called it the mercy seat. But the word there, the caparet, just means covering. It's the covering. And it's interesting to look at the imagery. God could have chosen anything or nothing to be on top of the covering. But he chooses cherubim. Cherubim. Many people for centuries have assume that that means two angels with wings pointing at each other. It's interesting, God asked them to 
be covering the top of the ark. So the covering has a covering, creating a space in between. Most people who haven't done a lot of digging here, and it's a little freaky, so when you start digging and you realize almost every commentator says the same thing, you realize that these aren't two typical humanoid angels with their wings pointing toward the middle. They're cherubim. Where have we seen the cherubim before? We've seen them before, before Exodus. Where did we see cherubim? Genesis. Genesis. Chapter 3. Yes, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, I think it is. We're right at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. God stations cherubim, two cherubs. They're facing each other, wings outstretched, pointing toward each other, and something that can only be described in their day as a flaming sword going every which way between so that no one could pass into uh, the Garden of Eden, and eat of the tree of life. God chose the exact same imagery of the gateway of the Garden of Eden after the fall of man to be the exact same imagery on top of the ark. That's what he put on top of the ark. There's no other reason for him to put two cherubim facing each other. We don't see it anywhere else in scripture. We can look farther on and we can see in 2 Samuel chapter 22, we can see in Ezekiel 1, 10, and 28, this reference to these cherubim, but we never see them, two of them, facing each other like this, except for at the gateway to the Garden of Eden. God created over the box that contained the wedding vows, the symbol of new beginnings with Aaron's rod, and a golden jar full of manna, which shows his sustaining power to always feed you. He placed the exact same thing you would have seen for generations had you taken the family to the gateway into Eden and looked and tried to look through to see the tree of life. It's the exact same imagery right on top. Why would God place that there? Now, by the way, I'm going to take a step back. This is something bizarre. Cherubim don't look like humans. Not according to Ezekiel, um, and not according to David in, in 2 Samuel 22. A cherubim uh, is something, you've seen it before, because other cultures have uh, basically taken from this imagery and made it their own. But a cherub would actually look more like a lion's body, a human's head, and wings. Have you seen that before? Maybe at the Sphinx? Maybe on the walls of Babylon, one of the first heavenly creatures that humanity got to see had a lion's body, big wings, and a human's face. It's believed that instead of having two humanoid angels with wings pointing at each other, that it actually looked like two sphinxes on top of the ark with wings pointing toward each other symbolizing the exact same scene you would have seen looking into the Garden of Eden. Is it possible that what God is trying to say through here is that I want to reopen the gate. I want you to come right here before the gate, and in that space there will be a fire. And instead of it being a flaming sword going all over, it will be me. I'm standing at the door. Anyone who hears me at the door, I will welcome in. 
Is it possible the imagery of the ark and the holiest of holies was for mankind to kneel once more before the gate and say, how can we get back in? The reason for the wedding vows and the new beginnings and the manna being in there. First of all, the manna, we'll go backwards. If you read Revelation 2.17, it says, for those who overcome, God will give you two things. And one of them is the manna. You made it through the gate. Here you go. Here's something from the ark. You get to try the manna. God is saying to the people of Israel, I'm reopening the gate. I'm going to let you back in to the tree of life. Boy, I don't know about you, but I will never look at the tabernacle furniture the same way again. Hey, come on back for episode 17 because we got some trouble. We got trouble at the honeymoon and we got to take care of that. I also wanted to take a moment here to let you know if you are planning on being a first-time guest to the Bible Lab, please listen to what the announcer is about to say and send us an email because I would hate it if you came all the way and ended up not getting a seat. So definitely send us a message. We want to be prepared for you. Can't wait to see you soon. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.